Good evening, everyone. My name is Hank, and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank the committee and whoever is responsible for me standing right here. And uh, up until right just this minute, this has been a wonderful convention. <laughs> I've enjoyed all the speakers, and uh, it's just been great. And uh, my friend Keith is going to speak tomorrow morning. I'm sure he's going to be good. And uh, Keith uh, and Sally both welcomed me into AA. And I used to, I had about six months of sobriety, and I got a sponsor, Clancy, and I walked into the Pacific Group, and Keith kissed me. <laughs> and I said, oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, and hugged both me and my wife at the same time, you know. And, uh, but it was it was terrific. It, everything was great in that in that Pacific group at that time. I I just got caught up in the excitement of it and it was wonderful. But I don't know what I can do here to make. Can you hear better now? This one. Okay. Is that better? Okay. I want you to hear this. This is very important. <laughs> uh. I guess I better just back up and tell you what I used to be like and what happened and what it's like now. I I used to drink a lot. I thought I'd better throw that in right away so you know I, I'm not an imposter standing up here. You know, I drank a lot. And uh I uh I went to some AA meetings because my then wife decided to go to AA and I went as a visitor. And uh, I thought it was ridiculous that she was going to go, but I went as a visitor, and no one put in, no one put any heat on me, and I just I just went to meetings. I hated them, and uh, uh, and I uh, I don't know heard something here. I heard that I and I identified with someone, and I realized I was an alcoholic. And so uh, through a long, boring process, I I finally quit drinking, and. Uh, uh, and here I'm standing here tonight with 25 and a half years of sobriety. And the reason I am is because my wife went to AA, because I wouldn't have gone back. You see, I had gone to AA one time, and it was one of these meetings in Los Angeles that uh, they pass out chips there, a little different than they do down here in the South. But uh, uh, <clears throat> the meeting that night is they, at the beginning of the meeting, person leading the meeting said, is there anyone here that has just finished their first 30 days of sobriety? If so, come up and get a chip and say a few words. And so here comes this guy up, you know, and he says, my name's Joe Blow and I'm an alcoholic and I'm really proud to get this chip. But I know this is a spiritual program. I found God when I walked through the doors of AA. And you know, it's the lights in the eyes of the people that just turn me on and keep me coming back to these meetings, and I just love everybody. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh man, Ed, come on. You know, and, uh, and he said, just before I came to the meeting tonight, I got a call from my employer, and he made me general manager down at the plant. It's just a wonderful, glorious way of life. And, for all you newcomers, keep coming back. We love you. And I, man, oh man, I, you know, I just 
my, this made my skin crawl, you know? And, uh, and then he sat down. And, uh, anyone else just finished their first 30 days of sobriety? And here comes this lady running up, you know. My name's Mary Smith and I'm an alcoholic and I'm really proud to get this chip. And I know this is a spiritual program. I found God when I walked through the doors of AM. <laughs> And it's the lights in the eyes of the people that just turn me on and keep me coming back to these meetings. And I just love everybody. You know, not just the people in AA. I love everybody in the whole world. You know, hate, is, hate is no longer a word in my vocabulary. Huh? Uh, just a short time ago, my children, when they looked my way, had a look of fear in their eyes. Now when our eyes meet, there's a look of respect. And I've noticed lately that my husband is looking at me with renewed interest. And it's just a wonderful, glorious life. And uh, uh, my children were all failing in school. And now we're getting letters from all the major universities throughout the United States <laughs> offering free scholarships. And I just can't begin to tell you what a wonderful, glorious life this is, sober. You know, it's been the best 30 days of my entire life. And, and when I wake up, I grab the hand of God and we walk through the day hand in hand together. I wasn't able to attend the whole meeting that night. I needed a drink. And I went and got one, or 20. Jeez, what a shock. And, uh, and I just kept on drinking. And uh, my wife and I separated for the last and final time. She divorced me the third time. You know, this was going to be it. And, you know, okay, you want a divorce, you got it, you know. And I'm tired of this. You can have the house, you can have the furniture, you can have everything. All I want is my stack of old 78 records. And uh, that's all. And I moved to a little place in Hermosa Beach, California. It actually was a garage that they had made some living quarters. You know. and, uh, and, it, and the landlady that said, you know, this is a half a block from the, the ocean this place. I said, no kidding. Said, That's great. And uh, and so I moved in. And I figured, well, now I'll be down here by myself, art, and I can drink the way I want to drink. And that, that part of my life is over, and I've been set free. I'll be able to I'll get up every morning, and I'll run five miles along the ocean edge, and, uh, and then I'll plunge into the ocean and ride a few waves in and man I'll really feel great and then I can go to work as far as I know the water was down there I never I never really got around to checking it out for sure uh, but it was Hermosa Beach they must have had a, had water down there somewhere I, I was going to I, I just never got around to it that's all I only lived there four years I was gonna I was getting to it and, uh, I have a dual problem. A lot of people in AA have dual problems. 
they're alcoholics and drug addicts, they're alcoholics and overeaters, they're alcoholics and this, they're alcoholics and that. I'm an alcoholic and a procrastinator. <laughs> I, I always figure if a thing's worth doing, it's worth waiting until tomorrow to even consider doing. <laughs> As a result, I postponed about 30 years of my life. And I just didn't, you know, I, I, there would be a decision to make and, and I, I just postponed that till tomorrow. And, uh, and tomorrow would come and I just postponed a little farther. You know, and I continually postponed everything I was supposed to do. And, uh, uh, and that's the way I lived. And, uh, and I, I used to wake up in the morning startled, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And Already an hour, hour late to work. I'd get in that car and I'd weave in and out of traffic. I had to get there. See, I should have worked yesterday. I, le I left all those papers all over my desk. And, and uh, I had papers in my desk drawer. Some of them were months old. And they were too old to turn in. If I turned them in, I'd get fired for holding them so long. If I didn't turn them in, I was going to be fired. I knew today was the day. And... When I got there, I'd find a note on my desk, see the boss, and it would be all over. And you see, that's all I had left was that job. That I had drank my wife away, my kids away, my home away. I drank everything away except that job. And it was, I worked for a big company, and, uh, and they put my name on one of their business cards, and that's who I was. You know, and if I would have lost that job, that was my last little bit of respectability. If I'd have lost that job, I, I, I don't know what I've done. So I wanted to hang on to that job. And, uh, and I'd get to work and I'd check my desk, everything that seemed to be the same as yesterday. I'd, and I'd go to the coffee sh uh, room and get a cup of coffee and come back to my desk and shuffle papers and, and make excuses to my customers and at a respectable time. I'd go to the bar that was conveniently located right next door to where I work and have lunch. And they served martinis there. And I like martinis. And they sold double martinis for a dollar during the lunch hour. The regular ones were 75 cents. And I figured, whoever heard of having one martini? You're going to have two anyhow, so you might as well order the dollar one. You'll save 50 cents. God knows you need the money bad. And so I'd order the dollar one. And I'd get to sipping on it, and I'd kind of compare my drink against the guy sitting next to me and have a 75 cent. And, and I'd say to myself, this isn't really a double. It's a little larger than a 75 cent one. If it were really a dollar, it was really a double, they'd be charging more than a dollar. Now, who the hell do they think they're kidding, anyhow? So I better have another one. Then I'd have another one. Then I'd have another one. Then I'd have another one. And then I'd call the office and tell them, I forgot to tell you, I'm going on a lot of calls this afternoon. Take messages. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And I'd head towards the beach. And on the way, I'd stop it. There's a liquor store on every corner and in the, the Los Angeles area, stop and I'd buy the cheapest bottle of vodka I could find. Whatever was on sale that day, whatever was in that dusty basket they were trying to push, that's what I bought. And, uh, and I'd get home about 2, 2.30. And I'm kind of a neat drunk. I, 
hang up my clothes real carefully so the creases fall properly, you know, and put my shirt away and my tie and shoes and everything, and put my pajamas on. <coughs> and then I'd sit on the edge of my bed, and I'd untap that cheap vodka, and I'd take a big, big jolt out of it, now, several swallows, and I'd say to myself, well, done it again today. Yeah, this cannot continue. You're not the only guy that's ever been divorced. You're not the only guy that's ever been in debt. Why don't you do something about it? You just sit around and talk about stuff. You never take any action on anything. Then I'd put one of those old 78s on the turntable. Something like Billy Eckstein singing, Who Can I Turn To? <laughs> and then I'd go into my fantasy about starting tomorrow. Starting tomorrow is all going to be different. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock. I'm going to get down to that damn office by by 7. I'll knock out paperwork for a couple hours. When that phone starts ringing tomorrow, I'm going to be ready to do business. And starting tomorrow, a whole new life is going to open up for me. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to spend every waking moment earning money. You know, I'm so far in debt, I can't do anything about that marriage, but I'm if I just spend every waking moment earning money, you know, I'll, I'll really I'll be able to catch up. And I'm going to put a big red X on the calendar. And starting tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to work 365 days in a row. <laughs> you know, I'm in sales. I can work any hours I want to. And I'm going to work a 365 days in a row starting tomorrow morning. And I'm not even going to drink starting tomorrow morning. Man, what a terrific idea. I don't know where I come up with these ideas. You know, that, that's the solution to my problem. And I knew it. And, uh, and I'd start fantasizing what I was going to do with all the money. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but another one of my, my problems is I tend to project. And I could just see what things were going to be like 365 days from now. Because this see all my bills, all of them will be paid off. I'll have money in the bank. I have a new car. I just, everything would just be great, you know. And I could just see it. So I start celebrating a job well done. <laughs> and I'd, uh, and I'd look up at the clock. To be a quarter to eleven. Oh my God, where's this day gone? I just sat down on the edge of this bed. It can't be a quarter to eleven, you know. So I called the operator and checked. Quarter to eleven. I noticed I was almost out of booze. Oh my God, uh, the liquor store closed at eleven o'clock. I throw my clothes on over my pajamas and I'd run two blocks to the liquor store. That's when I first started jogging. About that time. <laughs> I had to get there. The place is going to close. I'd get there just as they were closing up bottle of Smirnoff. I always bought the better brands right around where I lived. I wouldn't want anybody to think I was cheap right there in the neighborhood. And uh, then I can stroll back to my shack with peace and contentment and security for the rest of the night. And I'd go back there and play a few more records fantasize about the good old days and that really weren't ever <laughs> all that good and uh and uh 
start rehearsing the speech I was going to have to give because I knew I was going to be salesman of the year. And somewhere in there I'd pass out. And I'd wake up the next morning, it'd be 10 o'clock. I'm already an hour late to work. Oh, man. I'd throw my clothes on and get in that car, wave in and out of traffic. I had to get there. You see, I should have worked yesterday. I left all those papers. And, and I knew there'd be a note on the desk. could see my see the boss. I knew it. You know, I, I had to have this job. And I knew I, this was it. And I'd get to the office, check everything out. Everything's the same. I could relax and have a cup of coffee and make excuses to my customers and at a respectable time I'd go to the bar that was conveniently located right next door to where I worked. I'd go over there and make the big decision of the day, whether to have the dollar one or the 75 cents. And then I'd have another one, then I'd have another one, then I'd have another one. You know, then I'd call them and tell them. I forgot to tell you, I'm going a lot of calls, take messages. And, uh, and I'd go, I'd head towards the beach and uh, get home and after buying a cheap bottle of vodka, hang up my clothes and put my pajamas on, sit on the edge of the bed and take a big, big jolt out of that cheap vodka. I'd say to myself, well, you've done it again today. Yeah. This cannot continue. You're not the only guy that's ever been in debt. You're not the only guy that's ever been divorced. Why don't you do something about it? All you do is sit around and talk about stuff. You never take any action on anything. Then I put one of those old records on the turntable. Something like Billy Eckstein singing, Who Can I Turn To? And then I'd go into my fantasy about starting tomorrow. It's all going to be different. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to work 365 days in a row and all that. I didn't do that once or twice. I did that hundreds of times. And then sometimes towards the end of the month, the bosses want to know, are you in sales here? And uh, and I'd say, yeah, I'm in sales. And he'd say, well, how about making a sale? And I'd say, don't worry about a thing. I'm a fast finisher. And I was. And, I'd, and that's when I really did work around the clock. And I always made my quota. And, uh, and I was in the top 10% of that company. And I don't know how I did that. I just can't explain it. But I got, they used to give me a plaque at the end of every year for, for making my, exceeding my quota. And a big plaque, and I put the name on it. Outstanding salesmanship and product knowledge for the year so and so. For eight drunken years in a row, I won a plaque every year. And then I got sober. Then I didn't win a plaque for eight years. You know, I don't know. I why I don't. I think what happened to me is I lost my fear. You know, the only reason I was working is I, 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 I tried to exceed in that job, and I was afraid of losing my job, and that's all I had. That was my last bit of respectability, and and I was afraid I'd lose that job, and it wasn't really the money that drove me, but uh, so. Uh, once I got sober, I lost the fear. I was no longer afraid. So they fired me, so I got another job. No big deal, you know. And, and, uh, in fact, after two years of sobriety, I walked in the office. Almost two years of sobriety. I walked in the office one day, and, uh, the guy said, you're fired. I said, 
you're kidding. Fired? You know? And I said, I, what do you mean? And he said, you're fired. You know, you know what, you having trouble understanding that? Yeah. And, and, uh, I says, well, I've got an outstanding sales record with this company. He says, not lately, you don't. And, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to go over your head. I'm going to go to the regional manager, talk to him. This is ridiculous. And I did. I went to the regional manager. I used to say I took my fifth step with my regional manager, but actually what I did is I, I, uh, I cried and whined to him. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I sponsor some guys and, uh, now and we go out whining and dining, you know. I, I eat while they whine. <laughs> But anyhow, I whined to this guy, and I told him, you know what they want to want to do to me? They want to fire me down there at the branch office. Can you believe that? Me, with my outstanding sales record. And uh, I said, you know, what they don't know is that about two years ago, I completely changed my life. And I, I quit drinking. I'm trying to make it with my wife again, the kids trying to pay my bills on time, trying to be a citizen in the community again. And I said, they don't know that. And so, and uh, he says, you know, Hank, he says, I had no idea you had a drinking problem, you know. He said, I sure hope everything works out for you. And he said, I hope you, you know, your wife and everything, hope everything goes well. But he says, I can't do a damn thing about it. If they don't want to, if they don't want you to work in that office, I can't make you, make them keep you. But you claim to be a salesman, go sell yourself to one of the other offices. He said, I'll put you on paid leave of absence for a short period of time. He said, go sell yourself to another office. We got 80 of them. And that's what I did. And I managed to stay with that company. Things got better. And towards the end there, I was winning plaques again, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, what happened to me, and I see it happen all the time with people in AA, at various stages of their sobriety, uh, and sometimes six months, a year, in my case, about a year and a half it set in, I got spiritual. You know, I really got spiritual, man. I, I just knew that this was it, and that God was going to do it all for me, you know. I didn't have to do a damn thing. I, and uh, I thought I could get promoted just for showing up at the office on time. And stuff like, you know, they expect you to work after you get there. That's what gets you the raises. And, uh, but, and I should have been fired because, you see, what I did is I spent about 90% of my day back then uh, calling other members of AA instead of working. And that, I don't know if I'd still be, be sober if I wouldn't, if I wouldn't have done that. But that's what happened to me. So I deserved to be fired. And, uh, about that time my sponsor got a hold of me. And he says, you know, Hank, he says, you just don't seem to get a, have a very good grasp of this program, do you? you know? And I says, well, you know, and he says, you know, you're, he says, I see it happen all the time with people. He says, they get so spiritual that, they just almost become, they just become so heavenly 
that they become of no earthly good to anybody. <laughs> and he pointed out that in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it states in there that it's okay to have your head in the clouds, but we need to keep our feet firmly planted on the ground. That's where our fellow travelers are. That's where, that's where the work is to be done. And that's what I, I've tried to do ever since. And I got way ahead of myself, but my wife went in, into AA and, uh, after a suicide attempt. And, uh, and I thought it was ridiculous. And I went to meetings with her just to keep her company, just to be a good guy. And, uh, and I was a visitor. And, uh, I, uh, one, uh, one Sunday afternoon during football season, uh, she asked me if I would go to a meeting with her. It was in the afternoon. And, uh, it's this clubhouse where they're having an anniversary meeting. And I have a guy by the name of Clancy talk there. And, uh, and her sponsor was sure that I would like him, you know. And, uh, so I, oh, okay, but I'd rather stay home and watch the football game. And, but I went to be a good guy. And, uh, and Clancy got up there and talked. And I thought it was really funny. It's the first time I laughed in a long time. It was ridiculous stuff that he did, you know, drunk and sober. He was thrown in the Texas State Insane Asylum. He jumped over the Texas State Insane Asylum wall and ran through the Texas Plains in his hairy cloth robe and everything. Just the way he told it was just hilarious. I really laughed. And uh and towards the end of his talk, he got a little serious. And he said, you know, all the things he had about eleven years of sobriety of all the things that I've done, drunk and sober, he said, I've been able to get forgiveness for or I've made amends for. He says, the things that are bothering me, he says are, are the things I haven't done. He says, the sins of omission. And he nailed me. Because up until that time, I didn't identify with anybody. You know. But I heard the truth about myself, and immediately it flashed, you know. I should have been a better son. I should have been a better husband, a better father, a better employee, a better, you know. I should have, I should have, I should have. And uh, I heard the truth about myself, and I didn't like it. I hate the truth about myself. I don't want to hear the truth about myself. You know, I can just barely stand it when you tell the truth about you. you know? <laughs> but I don't want to hear the truth about me. And I could hardly wait for that meeting to get over with so that I could go get a drink. And I did. And I went and got a drink. And, uh, but I left that meeting my guts on fire because I heard the truth about myself and I couldn't handle it. And so uh, I uh, I got sober and I I hated being sober. Uh, and a couple of weeks, you know, my last drink was a, was a terrible drink. I, I went out, my last time I drank, I drank all, all weekend. I woke up Monday morning. I was late to work as usual. And I went in there and I went over to the bar a little early that day and I ordered a Bloody Mary. Because that's what you do when you're sick. 
it's medicine. It's not really a drink. It's, it's medicine. I needed a glass of medicine. And, and I, and the guy made me a big tall Bloody Mary and I drank it and I drank it straight down. Put the fire out. You know, gee, make me another one. And then I looked down and I spilled half of it all over my tie. And so I went to the restroom and I tried to clean the tomato juice off my tie. And, uh, and I came back to the bar and she said, did you want another Bloody Mary or did you want a martini? And I said, I'll just skip it. I went over to the coffee shop section of that place, had a sandwich and a glass of milk, and I haven't had a drink since. You know, I don't know. I, that wasn't the day I was going to quit. I hadn't even thought about it the night before. And, uh, and, but I, it, till this day, I haven't had another drink. And I've often thought, had I known that was going to be my last drink, I sure as hell wouldn't have had a Bloody Mary, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, I could have realized this is going to be my last drink, so give me some of that 50-year-old brandy you've got back there. Pour me a nice big one, you know, and have pour me a 50-year-old shot of 50-year-old brandy. Drank it straight down and smashed a glass on, on the barroom floor and stomped out of the place, triumphant over alcohol. But I, I didn't know it. And two or three weeks went by and I realized I hadn't had a drink. I was in some kind of an alcoholic fog. I, I don't know. I just kind of came out of it in a couple of weeks. And I had just completed 30 years of drinking. I've got this rotten wife. Got two of the worst kids you could possibly imagine. Pressure job. And I owe all this money. It's all past due. And now I can't even drink. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Nothing. That's what I'm going to do. There's nothing to do if you don't drink. I, I hear you guys and how wonderful it is to be sober and everything, but, you know, I'm not buying that. You know, I know how great it is. I've been sober before, and uh, and I'm stuck. I'll never be able to have a good time ever again. And I'll never even be able to go to a decent restaurant ever again. If you go to, I'm stuck at Denny's for the rest of my life. If you go into a nice restaurant, they serve liquor. And what's the first thing they want to know when you go into a place like that? Would you like a cocktail before dinner? And you can't say to them, well, yeah, I'd like one, but you see, I've got this disease. It's of a twofold nature. It's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind, and I can't even... Take one drink. I can't predict my behavior if I even take one drink. If it wasn't for that, I'd, I'd sure have one. I, I used to think you had to explain all that stuff to people. In fact, if I was standing on the street corner and somebody walked up, I'd start explaining what I was doing there. I, 
I just had to explain my life away, you know. And, uh, and that's the way I live. And one of the things I'm trying, I'm working on right now is to quit explaining. I don't know if there's any explainers out there tonight or not, but I'm, I'm a past master at explaining. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just trying to quit altogether. And it's hard. It's hard to quit. It, it, I, I go two or three days though, sometimes, with, without explaining anything. But I, invariably I'll catch myself explaining. And I always start from the day I was born and bring you up to date. You know, all the ramifications and pros and cons. Explain. I want you to understand. But while I'm doing that now, I catch myself in mid-explanation. And I just, hey, you're explaining, I say to myself, you know. So I stop. Right in mid-explanation. And you know, I got sad news for you explainers out there in the audience tonight. You know, they never, ever notice the difference when you quit. It, it turns out no one's listening to your explanation. No one's a damn bit interested in finding out why you haven't done something you were supposed to do in the first place. And I'm, I'm just trying to quit altogether. But it's not, it's not easy. And, uh, but I just floundered around in AA for about six months. I went to meetings all over the place and I didn't anchor myself anywhere. I didn't have a home group. I, I just didn't have a sponsor. People are asking me, how about getting a sponsor, you should get a sponsor. You know? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm a master of my own ship, you know, captain of my soul and all that stuff, you know. And I got that quote wrong, I know, Linda, but I'll clean it up next time. Maybe Dick can take that last one out. And, uh, but uh, I just, uh, I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't uh, listen to this stuff. You know? And uh, uh, I didn't want to get a sponsor. I didn't want anybody to run my life. You know. And uh, so one night I went to a meeting and there's a guy talking and he said that he spent his whole time talking about his, about his sponsor. Now his sponsor's this and his sponsor's that. He went over to his sponsor's yard on Saturday and played volleyball with his sponsor and, and, and how he played baseball in the yard and the, in the, across the street from where his sponsor lived. And, and Jesus went on and on and on about his sponsor. And uh, so I finally, after he got through talking, I said, who's, I said, who's your sponsor? I said, you, he sounds like a pretty good guy. And he says, oh, it's a guy by the name of Clancy. I said, oh, yeah. I said, I've heard him speak. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come up there Saturday and meet him? And, and so... I did. And, uh, and I didn't even ask him to be my sponsor. Somehow, Bill Brogan, uh, he's passed away now, he's the guy I heard. And, and he introduced me to Clancy, and, and I guess it was just assumed that I wanted him for my sponsor. I don't know, I didn't ask him. And, uh, he just told me to come and see him Monday morning at his office. He didn't have time to talk to me that day. He's gonna go off speaking somewhere. So, I, uh, Monday, I, I, uh, it was time to go see him. He's 
and he worked clear on the east side of Los Angeles, and I, I got in my car, and I needed gas in my car. And I said, well, I, I should pull over and get gas right now, but that they're, they're too, too expensive. I can get it cheaper, five cents a gallon cheaper down the block. I went down there, it was even more expensive. So I tried another, another place, but I, before I knew it, I was on the freeway. And I'm almost out of gas. My two front tires were ready to blow out any minute, you know, because I was looking for bargains. And I, you know, and anyhow, I finally made it to his his office. And I said, I don't know what's the matter with me. I said, I just postpone everything. And I said, I, hell, I'm believe it or not, I'm out of gas right now. I said, I can drove down here on the freeway 20 miles and and uh, said, on on no gas, on fumes. And I said, my two front tires are ready to blow out. I, I got the money right in my pocket. I said, I could buy, I could buy tires. And he says, as your new sponsor, I'm going to give you your first direction. And he got his pad out and he wrote, number one, when you leave here, stop at the first gas station, regardless of what brand it is or how much you want per gallon. Pull in there and fill it. And he said, number two, ask them if they sell tires. <laughs> if they sell tires, buy two front tires. Then have a, have a sandwich and call. And I did that, you know. And I was just really proud of myself. <laughs> and I, I, I was following my sponsor's direction. I call him up. I say, "Hey, I I did that," and, I, and uh, he says, "Fine. Why don't you go back to the office now and work on some of that back paperwork you've been crying about?" You know? And so I did that. And uh, and he, when he took me on, he said, "I'll sponsor you, providing you go to a couple of the meetings that I go to." He said, "I don't want to sponsor you just over the telephone. You to call me every day for a while." But he says, I want you to go to a couple of meetings. And one of the meetings is the Pacific Group and uh, meeting. And the format of that meeting is two 10-minute speakers, a coffee break, and then a main speaker. And they pick the 10-minute speakers on the way in. You never know when you're going to get tagged. And uh, and it was my second or third time going to that meeting. And... Uh, I walked in there one night, and the secretary shook my hand, and he says, you're the second 10-minute speaker tonight, Hank. I, I said, wait a minute. I, I said, I'm new. You know, I can't, I, I couldn't do that. He said, yeah, you can, it's okay. I said, no, it's not okay. <laughs> I, I said, I, I just had the worst day of my entire life. I couldn't possibly share this with my, you know, anybody. He said, that's okay. Just, I said, you don't seem to understand. I, I said, I just, I just wouldn't be able to do it. He says, what are you saying? You pass? I said, that's it. I pass. I said, ask me in about six months. I'll be happy to do it. And he says, at this meeting, we don't pass. <laughs> at this meeting, when you're asked to do something, we consider an AA request. And you never, ever 
turned down an AA request. I said, well, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so he says, well, why don't you go in and sit down and enjoy the meeting, but maybe next week you find another meeting, uh, some other meeting where you can sit in the audience and be a spectator. Because he said, if you come to this meeting, you're going to be asked to do stuff. And I thought, geez, this guy is, this guy's really hard, you know. And, and, uh, and then I had just got a new sponsor, you know, I just got Clancy's sponsor, and he'd probably tell him, and, and so I oh, all right, I'll talk. And so I don't know who the first 10 minute speaker was. It could have been a two headed man for all I know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was so obsessed, you know, I was so into this. Well, you know, I didn't have time to rehearse. Had I known I was going to be the 10 minute speaker a week or two ahead of time, I could have kind of rehearsed it, you know, could have gone to the big book and gleaned some of those wonderful lines and wrote them, maybe wrote them down on a little piece of paper, like I laid them on you, you know. But I didn't have time to rehearse. I didn't have time to re- prepare my talk. So I just got up, when they called my name, I just got up and told the truth. And the truth was that I said, my name is Hank Johnson, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, I hate AA. <laughs> and I said, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to hang on. I said, I hear all these stories people stop drinking and everything just gets wonderful. But I said, it hasn't been the case with me. I said, everything has just gone down the tube. I said, my wife is driving me crazy and the kids and my work and all this. Jeez, you know, it's just more than I can handle. And, and I just went on and on and on like that for ten minutes. And, uh, and then I stopped and they all clapped, you know. Just, and, and I sat down and they had a coffee break. And that's when the miracle of AA happened for me. Because, you see, I got unconditional acceptance from about 250 people. Unconditional love from 250 people. It was overwhelming. Because here, here I, I had just told you how I felt. You know, I didn't try to know you with any kind of a snow job or anything. I just told the truth how I felt about it. And you still loved me. And you still accepted me. And it was that's when AA happened for me. Up until that time, I was dry. But that's what that's when AA started. And from that moment until right now, as far as I know, I haven't turned down an AA request. And, but things weren't all that great. Uh, just because of that happened, but it was good. It was a start. And, uh, but I remember calling him up. He's like, one morning, one Monday morning, I called him up and I said, you know, I'm not going to be able to go to all these meetings you want me to go to. He says, why not? I, and I said, well, I, I don't know what's wrong, but I've got these, these un, undetermined fears. I just can't tell you what it is, but, He's got these feelings of impending doom. I learned that here, impending doom. I've never heard that term before. But I've got these feelings of impending doom. And, and, 
And I'm just, what I'm gonna do is, you know, I had gone, I've been to therapy for about 15 years prior to getting sober, but I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna get a good therapist and I'm really gonna get into it and I'll find out what the hell it is that's wrong with me. And he says, where are you? And I said, I'm at home. And he says, well, it's 10 o'clock in the morning on a work day. So I've already been at work for an hour and a half or so. He says, there's nothing psychologically wrong with you this morning. You're just not where you're supposed to be, that's all. <laughs> he says, you know, he says, get dressed and go to work. He said, you'll be a little embarrassed when you get there, but, uh, uh, that'll be, that'll pass shortly. And, uh, then call me up. And I did that. And I called him up and I said, I, I feel much better. <laughs> and it turns out, sir, I don't have any deep, dark psychological problems. I'm just lazy, that's all. <laughs> I want you to do it for me. Work this program for me. Explain it to me. I don't want to do it. I want to live in fantasy. I want to, I want to live in wishful thinking about 365 days from now, how wonderful it will be. I don't want to do any of it. So do it for me and love me while you're doing it and accept me for my limitations and overlook them. That's not the way it worked in the group that I went to. And, uh, so, so I carried on. And, uh, came time and someone asked me to talk at the shoot meeting, Woodland Hill. And, uh, it's gonna be my first talk. And I hadn't taken my inventory yet. And, uh, and what am I gonna say when, you know, my talk? So, I, uh, I said, now's the time for me to take my inventory. I'll take my fourth step, and, and, and as soon as I get it done, I'll, I'll give my fifth step, and, and then I speak at Woodland Hills, uh, action group, I think it was, on shoot, and, and, uh, and then I can lay it on. How the hell do you ever expect to stay sober if you don't take your fourth step? And, but, so I went to San Diego and locked myself in a motel room and, and took my inventory. And I got there about three o'clock in the afternoon. I worked all day and uh, up into the, like two a.m. and I wrote it all out best I could. And then I called my sponsor and asked, and I told him, I said, "I'm ready to take my fifth step." And uh, he said, "Well, okay." He said, "I can, I can hear your fifth step three weeks from next Tuesday." <laughs> my plan all went down the tubes. And, uh, and you know, that's the way I worked the rest of these steps. I was in this big group and they'd want to know what step I was on. And I'd say, well, what step are you on? And I'm on step six. Well, then I'm on step seven. I always try to keep at least one step ahead of it, you know? And, but then I had to do it. And, uh, and I took these steps for all the wrong reasons and with no sincerity at all. And I'll be damned if I haven't had a spiritual awakening 
as a result of those steps just as if I'd have been sincere in the first place. You know. My sponsors did not want to debate or talk about what the steps really meant. You know. He wasn't interested in debating you know, the situation at all. Just take the damn thing. Just take the steps. That's all. It's very simple. You know. and, uh, and I did. And uh, as a result, I have a spiritual awakening. And my life has been good. And um, early, earlier today, I was on the relationship panel. And uh, I didn't know what the hell it's saying about relationships, you know. But uh, that's what my wife and I really did, is we learned how to relate to one another for several years. Then. When we first got sober, when we first got sober, we just... We weren't relating at all. <laughs> in fact, we lived in the same house, and that was about all, you know. And, uh, uh, in fact, I thought, well, I'll stay sober for six months. At the end of six months, I'll split. But I won't cause any trouble during the six, first six months. I'll earn a lot of money, and I'll stash it. And at the end of six months, I'll split. And I'll either go to San Francisco or Las Vegas, and start a new life. I was kind of leaning towards the Las Vegas. <laughs> and at, at the end of six months, I forgot. I forgot my promise to myself. I forgot all about that I was going to leave town for six months. You know? Things got bad. And that's the way it's been with me. It's just a, kind of a long process. I walked in once one Saturday afternoon, I walked over, and there was a guy in the in Clancy's backyard, and he says, "You know, Hank," he says, "a lot of us spent money just like we drank, completely out of control." And uh, and he said, "We're few of us going to meet over at my house on Monday night, and we're going to take a financial inventory of ourselves and uh, try to do something about it." And uh he said we'd like if you'd like to join us we'd be happy to have you. And I didn't want to do that. And uh, you know, I owed money to everybody. And and he says, Bring all your bills and bring your checkbook and your pay stubs. I'm not gonna bring my pay stubs. I don't want you to know how much I really make, you know. I was wearing, wearing tailor-made suits back then, no shorts, but I looked good, you know. And, and I didn't want anybody to know how much I really made, and, and but I somehow I did it, and I gathered up all my bills, and uh, and I went over to this guy's house, and we made a big stack of bills, you know. We piled my bills one on top of the other, with about three feet high. And before I left that night, without even paying one bill, my my indebtedness reduced by two-thirds. Because you see, I was carrying duplicates and triplicates and, and telegrams and all that, and we threw everything away except one copy of each bill. And and so what I, what was three feet high, I reduced down to about one foot. And that's been the story of my life. 
Because, you see, I carry this stuff around in my head, and I build on it and build on it and build on it. And finally, I'm forced to take a look at it. And when I do, I make a list, and it might be bad, but not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. And it seems like this the first step is basic. And then it's over. Then you can get through it. And uh, so it took me three years. It took me three years to get current in my bill. You know, I don't mean paid off. I just mean current, you know. And uh, But I went in there one time. I, I got a $1,300 refund for my income tax one time. And uh, I figured, oh, man, this is going to be great. And I went to the financial meeting, and I told them I just got $1,300 back. And I said, what I thought I'd do is throw 300 in the pot and pay bills with that 300 Then I'm going to I'm gonna stash that $1,000 and keep it for an emergency, you know, in case anything comes up. You know. well, I, I left that night with about $13 in my check. You know, you act like it's your money. And I said, well, it is my money. He says, no. He says, your creditors aren't asking you for your money. They want their money. And uh, so I that was a hard concept for me to understand. But I got current in my bill. And when I got current after three years, I uh, I felt more like a man that day than I had in a long, long time. Because, see, drinking people under the table and, uh, you know, and being, and looking good at the bars and, and all that stuff, you know, uh, that's, that's not it. You know, but being a paid up citizen in the world, that's it. And I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach, you know, that was, I was solid and I was okay. And I could meet anybody walking down the street, and it was all right. And it set me free. I've uh, I've had a lot of experiences like that in AA. My uh, my wife got sick, and I I mentioned this earlier today. My wife got sick with cancer, and she came to my office and told me that I just got she had we had eleven years of sobriety at the time. She said I got cancer. I expected to live for 90 days, that's all. And, uh, and I, and we had just moved up to the desert. And, uh, we had a home up there. We were gonna end up retiring up there. And, uh, and I, and it was really, you know, I was almost angry with her that she got sick. And it was very inconvenient for me, for her to be sick. And, uh, but I went to my meeting that night. And the meeting was just a regular, ordinary meeting. And I uh, went there. And at the end of the meeting, as they do sometimes in, in Los Angeles and other places too, they read on page 164 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. They read, ask in your morning meditation what you can do for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. And 
I listened to that that night, and it was like the first time I ever heard it. And I said, I said, yeah, that's right. You know, my house is in order. Driving up there to the meeting that night, I thought, you know, who are you kidding? You say you work, you've worked these steps, and you didn't really work them right. You know, and you're just, you're a phony. And then I heard that, and, you know, asking your morning meditation what you can do to stay for the man who's still sick. You know, the answers will come if your own house is in order. And I said, that's it. My house is in order. Our house is in order. You know, I had long since paid off those bills. I had become responsible and dependable. My word was good. And I walked out of that meeting that night, and I knew that I was going to be able to be of some help to her. And I was. And, uh, and the next five years were rough. And, uh, she passed, she lived for five years. And, uh, but everything that needed to be said between her and I had long been said. Everything that needed to be done had long been done. And, uh, we were current. We were current in our affairs. And, uh, and when she passed away, it was a damn shame that she had to go. And, uh, you know, how come, it, and then, you know, I don't know if anybody's experienced this, but you try to figure out what's God's will. You know, that's gotta be God's will. And I don't think so. I, I, you know, I don't think people get cancer, uh, because it's God's will. I think they smoke too many cigarettes. And, uh, I think that's my pen. And, uh, and how come she got cancer anyhow? And I did, and I smoked twice as many cigarettes as she did. I, I drank three times as much, ten times as much as she ever drank. And, uh, yet she got sick and died. So, I, uh, you know, it was a, it was a shame. But I, uh, but I was prepared for her death. And when she died, I just kind of, you know, people have asked me, you know, uh, did you grieve after your wife? died. And I said, well, of course I did, but I, I did most of the grieving. Most of the grieving had already been done. You know. And uh, it was it was kind of a relief in a way. And yet it was sad. And so when she died, uh, I uh, I didn't know what to do with myself again. And uh, we were married 38 years. And uh, so uh, I uh, uh, I just kind of got pulled back into the world of the living by members of Alcoholics Anonymous, men and women. And I just kept busy. And, uh, and I went to a lot of meetings and, and uh, had a respectable time where they tried to fix me up with women, you know. And, uh, and I, uh, finally I, I decided, well, I guess I wouldn't mind going out and, and I think I'll, uh, I think I'll call this so-and-so or this woman, you know, and, uh, I said, well, what makes you think that she'd go out with you? And I said, well, how do I know whether she'll go out with me or not? You know, I'd like to call her and, uh, well, go call her, and I say to myself. And so I, I call her. Would you like to go out? Sure. Oh, gee. Now what, now what am I gonna do? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know anything about relationships. I've been married all my life. <laughs> and all the, all the, pen, you know, all those feelings that I had when I was 16 and 17, 18 years old came back to me. They all came back to me. All those feelings of inadequacy and all the fears connected with the opposite sex all came back to me. And I remembered why I drank in the first place. <laughs> and I've been able to work through all that without a drink. And then I was asked to speak in North Carolina. In Charlotte, North Carolina, a little, little convention there. And, uh, and I met Linda. And I had met Linda about, I don't know, eight years or so prior to that in Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, and, uh, and so we kind of got reacquainted, you know. And, uh, she was, she had moved there five years prior to that. And, we got to talking, and one thing led to another. She was single, I was single, and all that. And and, uh, and uh, I told her next time I was anywhere near Charlotte, I'd drop in, maybe we'd go out to dinner. And uh, so I happened to be pretty close, uh, only about 1,200 miles. <laughs> and so I stopped by. <laughs> and, uh, and I now live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Linda and I got married about a year and a half ago, and uh, we were we were, we got to go to Paris, and we got to go to London, you know, and uh, we had a great time. We had to meet, of course. That's what you do when, when you're my age, and you go to meetings, and uh, and we went to meetings in England and Paris, and uh, and it was great, and we've had a wonderful. A wonderful time together so far, you know, it's just been great. And, uh, we have, and it's a whole new adventure in my life. It's all new again. Just like when I caught fire in AA. You know, my whole life is brand new again, you know. And, uh, and every, every day is an adventure, you know. And you talk about marriage being, you know, one day at a time. Hell, I'm just here one day at a time. I, whether I want to admit all I got is one day at a time, that's all I got. It's all any of us have got today. And, uh, I'm gonna make the most of each day. I, uh, I love being sober. You know, my son, he used to look at me real funny back in those days when I was drinking. And he was about 16. And he used to look at me real funny. And, uh, and uh, later on, I found out the reason he was looking at me so funny is that he was stoned out of his gourd. <laughs> and it turns out that he has a problem with alcohol, too. And he turned himself into AA when he was 21 years old. And I helped him celebrate his 22nd birthday last May the 27th. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, they say that they say that alcohol runs in the family, you know, and it's your parents' fault, you know. Well, I, I don't take the blame for my son's alcoholism, you know. He, uh, it probably does run in the family. I, I'm not arguing that point, but he did his own drinking, you know. I didn't, I didn't drink for him. I didn't pour it down him. I didn't shoot it in him or anything. He just did his own drinking. And, uh, 
and I'm not responsible for his alcoholism. And, uh, and I'm not going to take credit for his recovery either. Uh, he's working a good program and sponsors a lot of people. And, and Linda, my, and me, and my son Matt, but all three of us are going to speak in Little Rock, Arkansas next, next, uh, weekend. And we're looking forward to that, you know. And Linda's going to get to visit her new 43 year old son. And, uh, and she's a new mom now. <laughs> and so things are great. And about the only thing that I know absolutely for sure, positively, is that this is a spiritual program. <laughs> and I know that I found God when I walked through the door of AA. And it's the lights in the eyes of the people that just turn me on and keep me coming back. Thank you very much.